0: Good evening again this evening. Welcome back. I appreciate that beautiful introduction, that word picture. Uh, I needed to see that, and I'm asking God to do that in my heart my own life. Now, I want to say that uh, whatever I say this week, I say it because I believe it, but I say it because I also need it, and there's nothing I'll say that I'm not asking God to do in my own life and heart. And so I just want to give that uh, honest assessment of the situation and know that uh, where there's spiritual truth, I need it as much as anybody, and so we're here learning these things and asking God to make them work out in our life, and that's that's important for us to realize and seek together. hope you had a good day today. I enjoyed mine. I enjoyed driving around southern Minnesota and seeing things, and I enjoyed my drive this morning, this evening, just seeing the kind of uh, countryside and lifestyle that's here, and Getting to some of your homes, I appreciate that. I hope you have roots tonight. I hope they're growing deep. I hope you're finding nutrients. I hope there's oil in your lamp. I hope you thought about that today and are doing what it takes to make sure these realities are true in your life. And we talked about that last night, the importance of the inward things that only God knows and can see so that there can be fruit from that that is godly fruit and good fruit. And uh, you know, we conservative churches believe in the value of outward expressions. We believe that if there's a spiritual truth, then there must be a corresponding application. There needs to be a working it out in the life for it to be real. And so I believe that's a good thing. We have certain agreements, certain standards, certain expectations. And some people look at that and think the kinds of things you agree to do is almost like a stifling of spiritual life. If you hang too much on yourselves, it's almost like a thick, wet blanket on this inner life that is supposed to thrive. Uh, I don't believe that. I believe that conservative values and spiritual vitality are very complementary. They're not mutually exclusive at all. I think these things go very well together. But I will admit that sometimes we face a temptation because we do believe in the practice of things that are visible and obvious. If things do start going wrong inside, it's easy to let the outside things stand and just take shortcuts. And let the outward continue to cover for our inward deficiency. And that should not be. We had a sister in Guatemala who was a struggling young believer, I guess we should say. And when she would have a relational issue or a spiritual struggle or fall in some way, the first thing she would do is take her veil off. And she would go around without a veil on. She hadn't learned to pretend. <laughs> she, What was the problem in her heart was quickly obvious in her life. And you knew there was something to deal with. That wasn't the way to deal with it, but it was an obvious sign that something is wrong in her life. And so last night's message was not the only truth, but it was a principal one, I believe, and a foundational one. But I do believe that the evidence of inner life always has outward consequences and uh, fruit. And so there's a couple of promises I read today in Revelation I'd like to share with you. These caught my attention this afternoon. I thought I'd point them out. In Revelation 21... Verse seven. It says uh, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Revelation twenty two, fourteen says, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. So here are two expressions and outworkings of a vital and a vibrant Uh, walk with the Lord, an overcoming life and an obedient life. Both of these have to have their place in our daily walk. And these are the things that invite the blessing of God. And these are things that, well, the promise of heaven is given to such. But overcoming is how you and I handle temptations that the world throws at us. Every day we go out, every day we deal with things and issues. And either we do it in the spirit and the example of Christ and go through it victoriously, or we fail and we become carnal and we sin and we and we're defeated. One or the other. It talks of obedience. Obedience is how we respond to what the Lord gives us to do. Uh, principles, values, commands, and these two together exist in the life that goes to heaven, that's what it says. An overcoming and obedient life. And both of these are the outworkings of a vibrant and uh, honest heart before God. That's where it starts. I believe tonight we're speaking to a group of born-again believers. I was looking over the group. There's a few of you that I know. Maybe there's a few still counting the cost. I don't know where you're at with the Lord. I believe we're speaking to largely a group of people that, that walk with God. And all of us know that when we rise from our knees from accepting Jesus as Savior, we're not going into a park. We're going into a battleground. And that's just the life we face from day one because there is a battle going on. And there's two very real elements that struggle against each other. And on one hand, we have the flesh that we're always used to. And then we have the spirit. The flesh is the part of us that that struggles to submit, that wants to do it its own way, wants to gratify itself. It's a selfish thing. And uh, it's weak, it has bad habits. Then we have this spirit that's now influencing us toward God. It's a God-desiring, spirit-led uh, inner man that relates with the Lord. And, and as believers, we're called to live in the spirit and walk in the spirit. And as we do that, we can experience this overcoming and obedient life. I'd like to take you to Romans 8 this evening to speak of, maybe use this as a springboard at least for what follows in the message. Let's go ahead and read the first 11 verses of Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh." that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. So there's a lot in there. We're not going to try to unpack all of it. But probably the key verse tonight will be verse 2. Verse 2. This passage, and this verse especially, describes and compares two states, two ways of life, two operating systems. You know, you have Apple and you have something else. Windows, I guess. Two ways of doing it. Two ways of... And, and they're not... They, they don't mesh. It's a different way of life the law of of sin and death, the weakness of the flesh, the minding of the flesh, the carnality, the death, the enmity with God describes that state. Or we can experience the law of the Spirit of life and that's the conquering of sin It's an accomplishment of righteousness and a minding of the Spirit. It's a walking in peace with God and that's a description of a new state, a new way of living. And I believe here is where the Fruits and evidences of the inner life either shine or don't exist. I believe that my relationship with the cross of Jesus Christ determines which law is operating in my life. And uh, it would be interesting to do a study of several of these chapters. But Romans chapter 6 discusses at great length what the cross is like and what it's for. It talks about us being dead with Christ, crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, risen with Christ, uh, reckoned dead to sin, alive to God. It's all about what the cross will do if we embrace what it means and stands for. And somebody said, I sort of look at it this way, but if we if we understand Romans 6 and apply it to our life, then we can live what we read about in Romans 8. If we don't get it right and if we struggle to accept it, we'll probably end up stumbling around in Romans 7. Romans 7 is a chapter that we know to do good, but we can't do it. We know what not to do, we end up doing that. It's a frustrating experience and probably all of us have experienced it at some level at some point in our life. We know it's good, we fall short. Paul said, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. And when we let flesh dominate our life, then it's no good thing. But back to the key verse, Romans eight two. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. There's two laws described here. One is the law of, of, of life and the other is the law of death, of spirit and sin. Now, if you've studied science, you know when something becomes a theory. Something come, becomes a theory or maybe a proposition when somebody describes a possible solution to a problem. And so then you test it and you see how long it stands and you see if there's any situation that, that violates it. And then when there's no evidence that there's ever a situation where this does not work this way, you call it a law. And a law is, is held that it always works this way. It never can be violated. Now, I don't know if Paul knew that, but he described these two things as a law. A law of life and a law of death. A law always works. Uh, There's no place, I don't believe, that gravity is not in effect. Um, When I was young, I tried to trick my shadow. See if you could move fast enough, your shadow would keep on going while your finger went the other way. You can't do that. Um, The laws of physics never fail. They're just the way they are. And here's laws that work. The one law here in Romans 6.16 works. Know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey. His servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. This law of sin never fails. It's just like jumping off a cliff. If If you choose to live in sin, you're going down. Just like when you jump off a hill or a cliff or a silo. You're going down. And these laws never change because they're laws. But sometimes... Adding a new law makes a big difference. And so you have the story of Esther. And Esther was the queen because the king chose her out of many other options. And uh, Esther learned that Haman had made a law signed with the king's signature and that would not change, that all the Jews on a certain day were to be exterminated. And so she went and pled with the king and said, King, could you change the law? He said, No, I'm sorry, I can't change it. But we can make a new one. We can make a second law to add to the first one. And the second law was that all the Jews were allowed to band together and defend themselves and even take vengeance on their enemies if they wanted to. And the Jews rejoiced. And they took advantage of the second law in order to defeat the first law. And the second law made them victors instead of losers, overcomers instead of victims. And the result was totally different. Back in the 1600s, uh, Isaac Newton described first, accurately, I believe, the law of gravity. He's observed it and decided there must be something to this and described how it works. And man has been obeying the law of gravity since creation. Uh, they walked, they rode a horse, they took a boat, they, uh, they had to obey the law of gravity. It always worked that way, I believe. Somewhere south of here was sort of a, a stopping point where settlers going west would, would hook up with a wagon team and go across the mountains all the way out to Oregon. And all the way they had to obey the law of gravity. It took a long time, four to six months, to make it across the mountains with horses and wagons and oxen. But in the 1700s, another man came along called Bernoulli. I believe that's how you pronounce it. And he observed a different principle. And this principle works this way. The faster a fluid travels in a certain direction, the less the sideways pressure that it exerts. For instance, if you have a a pipe in your house carrying water and all the faucets are turned off, you might measure the pressure in that pipe. That's what is it, 40 or 50 pounds per square inch. I don't know what you keep your pressure tank at. But the moment you turn a spigot on and the water starts moving this way, the pressure it's exerting sideways reduces. It gets less. And so you turn the spigot back off, the pressure pops back up. And you go faster, then there's less pressure. And so the Wright brothers got a hold of this concept. And they designed something. They designed a wing that was flat on the bottom and curved across the top so that as this moves through the air, the air has to travel faster across the top than across the bottom, which exerts less air pressure here than here. And they took that and put an engine on it and flew it. And for the very first time, uh, there was a principle that overcame the law of gravity. And uh, it doesn't mean that gravity stopped working. Gravity works just as good as it did before. But there's a second principle that allows for the gravity to be overcome. Now, if you would stop that law, stop applying that up in mid-air, gravity would quickly take over. And uh, I had a beautiful flight from Roanoke to Rochester. And all the way from there to here, uh, Bernoulli's principle was stronger than Newton. And I'm glad it was. We made it here safely. And it was due to one application of one principle overriding the rule of another. And the outcome was very different. Three hours of flying instead of four months of wagon trains. or 24 hours of vehicle travel. The law of sin and death. Wherever that is in operation, wherever it holds sway, it always works. Satan is still destroying lives with that. And the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is a new law, a different law, that allows one to override the first one and have a new outcome. So the message tonight, we can entitle it, Walking in Newness of Life. And I believe this is a description of the obedient and overcoming life that we are called to live and... Uh, as I speak of these, we can understand that the first one may be defeated as we apply the second. But if we stop applying the second, the first always takes over. I'd like to invite you to Ephesians this evening. I'd like to talk about both of these laws. And uh, here's where we find some description of that first one. Ephesians 2, 1 to, 1 to 3. And I'd like to use this to help us understand, even though this is past tense, I believe for the believer this is also a good description of the ways that the law of the spirit of the law of sin and death operates in the world today and in our own lives if we allow it to. And uh I would like to spend enough time describing this to help us understand what it is that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus helps us overcome. And too many people claim the the spirit of life while living in these things. And I would like to just help us understand the law of the spirit of life is what helps us live above these things and in victory over these things. That's what Jesus meant it to mean. Let's read in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And you have he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So there's a few things here we could point out. We'll mention at least two this evening and get us a grasp of this. It speaks of the course of this world. And uh, like everybody else, we were part of that current. We were part of that uh, movement that uh, that grip of that entity. And the course here is like a direction. It came from somewhere. It's going somewhere. And I'd like to suggest that the society around us, whether you live in Virginia or Minnesota, is not consistent or constant. Uh, the moral standards and the things they the lines they draw between right and wrong are neither consistent nor constant. They, they change, they move, uh, and you can see that in various examples But morality, for instance. Uh, indecency in public is one thing at Walmart, but something totally different on the beach. Um, even if it's the same people that were here and now out there, or there and now here. There's a line they draw between what's there and what's here. Uh, human life, not many days at all separate uh, legal abortion from murder, they drew a line there, and so on. And these things don't stay the same. They move. Uh, what was true last year might not be true next year. There's always a pushing, a movement, a change in, in where these things are. Uh, some of you might be old enough to remember what happened in the 60s and 70s when the Beatles came on the scene and Elvis Presley was around and some of the shocking uh, new kind of music and the new way of presenting themselves. And this was so bad in those days that some countries outlawed them altogether. Some TV shows only show them like from the waist up. They wouldn't even show the whole person. And this music was considered shocking. And so today if you go into a store and you hear the Beatles playing over the loudspeaker, you would listen and say, that's almost, almost nice compared to what's typical today. And it's not that they've changed. It's because society has changed. And things have gotten so much worse that that seems almost tame in comparison. Um, the same thing goes in the society's acceptance of uh, expressions of sexuality. Back in the 1970s, there was a the first Supreme Court case regarding homosexuality came before the court, and it was dismissed with a single-sentence ruling. We're not going to. I don't know what the sentence was, but very short ruling. It was tossed out. And now we're here, many years later, and state after state is caving. The acceptance level is just becoming more and more prevalent. What happened? It's because society used to be here, now it's here, and so the morality changes. And if you step back and look at it, it's a current. It's a river. It's a movement. It's not staying the same. Now, Scripture describes Satan as the god of this world. I believe he's influenced in the course of this thing. And I believe that this river of society is where the law of sin and death operates. It describes that as part of this sin package here. It's where it operates. And uh, people are just used to being carried along in it. What used to be shocking is no longer shocking. What used to be unacceptable is now totally fine. This affects us as a church. When I was young, I grew up beside a river, and the river was quite calm there, and if you would walk up to it and look at it, you might think it could be a lake. It's not it's not obviously a real fast current, but you stop and look, things are moving in it. The foam on top, the leaves on top, there's obvious movement if you watch it. It's going past you. And uh, I remember as a youth looking at issues the church was facing and questions about what's acceptable and what's not. And looking at issues and just trying to think, why couldn't we as a generation just look at an issue and take it or leave it based on face value and let each generation make up their own minds on this thing? What's the big deal? Where's the danger? But the longer we watch it, the longer we look at it, the more we realize the thing that looks like a singular issue is part of a bigger package. It's part of a, it's like a a still photo of a moving thing, and so we're looking at it with a perspective this big, and some of you older people have a perspective this big, and God has a larger one still. And I watched uh, the music in our youth group and how it changed, beginning from a certain thing and graduating to something else, then going to something different, and there's a pattern to it, a direction to it. I was at one church a long time ago, and I sat there and compared a little bit covering size. Mother, daughter, mother, daughter. And 100% was larger, smaller. It's just the way it was. And uh, I was seeing a snapshot of a moving thing. <laughs> That's what it seemed like to me. Sometimes we grapple with nonconformity. And why be so different? It's a struggle sometimes. We need to realize there is a pressure. There is a something trying to force us into a mold the Christian does not belong in. We have to be aware of that when we're shopping, when we're on the internet, or when we're in town, or wherever we are. We're aware of that push, that effort, that there's a mind back there would love to force us into a mold that we don't fit. We need to know where we stand on this. But I was all this to say that in that current is one place that the law of sin and death operates to keep people in it, part of it, and allowing them to be swept along in this in this movement. And wherever the whatever the spirit of life in Christ is, it must allow us to live above that pressure and above that influence, and allow us to be free of it. Um, I'm not advocating complete changelessness. I believe there's changes this way, and there's also changes this way. And so we be careful the kinds of things we adapt to and become comfortable with. That's one that Ephesians mention. The second one. I believe, is an expression of the law of sin and death is found here when people fulfill the desires of their flesh and of their minds. It speaks of that. And James talks of that in James 1, 13, and 14. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. There's two words in these verses. One is Temptation. And when I think of temptation, I think of what's out there. It's things that the world comes up with. It's the things that are presented to me as acceptable or attractive or interesting. But there's another word in here. It's lust. And if temptation is their problem, then lust is my problem. It's the thing in me, the concupiscence perhaps, or the inordinate desire for the forbidden, however you would describe that, that, that works like two poles on a magnet with temptation. And if you have a, a, a person that's living to fulfill the desires of his flesh and his mind, temptation and lust equal sin automatically. There's like a unavoidable connection because there's no resistance to it. It's like this automatic fulfilling of the desires of the flesh and of the mind. The law of sin and death... When this is an operation, the temptation from without, the desire within, leads a person into sin and bondage. When that, when that pattern repeats itself often enough, it's no longer a single decision. It's more of a, a foregone conclusion. It's more of a, a pattern that will very hardly be broken. Uh, Jesus describes this way in John eight thirty four, verily verily I say unto you whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. The servant doesn't get to say anymore what he does and what he doesn't do. He has a master that tells him, and so he does it. There's a principle here: we're free to choose a master. After that, we can't choose an outcome. So there's slavery, and when sin is no longer a choice, but a response. That's what I would describe as bondage to sin. Bondage to sin. And so, I hope you're not in bondage to sin. I hope when you face a temptation, you're free to make up your own mind. I hope you're free to decide, do I or don't I? Some people aren't. They're at the point in their life when it's it's a slavery, it's an addiction, it's a bondage to it. So here's Brother Dennis. And I trust Dennis. And I believe if we would put him in a room and have an open bottle of Jack Daniels on the table and he would sit there, we might know the outcome. But would he be tempted? I don't know. Maybe he'd be a little curious. You know, never tasted this before. What would it be like? Uh, other people seem to like it. Maybe it tastes like the barbecue sauce or maybe it tastes like, you know, it's uh, down Tennessee. I think it's pretty special. But knowing Dennis... Uh, his decision-making powers will kick in. He'll think, what's the consequences if I try it? What's the consequences if I don't? And he will be able to say, you know what? It's not worth it. I'm not going to touch it because I know it's just not the best for me and it's not God's will for my life. But I know some people that if they were put in a situation like this, there's no deciding to be made. Their decision was made a long time ago. They've, they've done it often enough, and they've been doing it long enough that it's just this, Coming together of lust and temptation is like this, this pool that is beyond their power to stop. And they know the, the pain of a hanger and they know the, 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 the difficulty and the consequences, but they do it again. That's bondage. If you're by yourself and you run across a pornographic magazine or something pops up on the screen, you can click it or leave it. You can open it or ignore it. What are you gonna do? Very likely, what you will do depends on what you did last time. And if there's a habit of this kind of thing, this kind of behavior, very likely it will be next to impossible to by yourself say no. If you're a thinking person, if you're a free person, if you're operating in the spirit of life of Christ, you will look at it and say, what are the consequences if I do? What are the consequences if I don't? The temptation might pull pretty hard. You might be extremely curious and tempted But I know some people that would have no decision to make. Uh, the outcome is almost predecided because of the kinds of bondage they're in. And they know where it takes them. They know the shame of it, the consequence of it. But there's almost no turning back because there's something at work there that has not been overcome yet. I believe if the law of sin and death would have a poster child, it'd be Samson, Samson. Uh, how this operates. And Samson was a a strong man with a weak will. And Samson went down to Timnath one time, just, you know, visiting the, the Philistines. And he saw this lady, and he was very interested. And he went home and almost coerced his parents into going down and getting her for him. So he went down and married her. Well, the marriage lasted a week or two. There was this issue with the bet. And then, in the meantime, his father-in-law gave her to somebody else. And so he lost his wife. Well, he went over to uh, Gaza. And there he found a harlot. Fell in love with her for a while. After that, he went down to Sorek. And that's where he found Delilah. Fell in love with her. And that's where he lost his strength, lost his freedom, lost his sight. And everything that God had given him, he gave it up to the Philistines. He gave it up, lost it, and was made a slave grinding corn. And his, his moral bondage... Started with the first decision to follow after something that gratified the flesh. And with that continual pursuit, the moral bondage took a deeper and deeper hold until it became a physical bondage. And in the physical bondage, he was made to grind corn for the enemy, without sight, morning to night. That's a, that's a sad, sad picture. And, uh, we meet people sometimes that think they can do it their way and they can get away with it and they're enjoying it, they're doing it for themselves and they have no idea they're just grinding for the enemy. They're doing his, his dirty work and they're doing it for his benefit. Whatever the law of spirit of life is, it must enable us to live above and break free from this kind of thing. Lift us above the gravity, retrain our appetites, give us something new to live for. That's the old law. That's the one that the new law comes into effect to help us overcome. This second law is more powerful and exceedingly effective and able to give us a victorious life. And it says here, The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. And the question is not, is it true or isn't it? But has it, has it happened in you? <laughs> is it working in your heart? Is it making a difference in your life? Are we going with the flow or are we charting a different course? And this new law will do to the old law what Bernoulli did to gravity. It doesn't undo it, doesn't remove it, doesn't mean it doesn't work anymore. It just allows a person to rise above it and live free of it. I believe that the law of the spirit of life consists of two definable parts. We must be born of the Spirit, and we must walk in the Spirit. Two things that can be looked at as separate, but they must work together as one. I'd like to briefly speak of them this evening yet. In, in John 3, a man came to see Jesus at night, and Jesus told Nicodemus, You must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. You must be born from above. You must have this new start, this new beginning of God's Spirit operating within you to give you a new life. That's where it begins. And that requires faith and repentance, but it's consummated by the power and this operation of God. I'd like to invite you to Ezekiel 36. I know this is given in prophecy. Maybe it's a dual prophecy, but it's a beautiful description of what this new birth looks like. I'd like to read it thinking about that this evening in Ezekiel 36. And as we read these verses, think of a couple of things. What happens and who's responsible for what happens in this passage? Verse 25, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And here's a beautiful description of newness of life, newness of birth, a new beginning. Did you notice who is going to create this? Who is going to work this out and make it happen? And I do not believe that what's taught here is divorced from our choices. We choose to repent. We believe. We trust. But when God comes on that basis, these are things that He commits to work out in our life. And we cooperate with that. And we're, we're agreed with that. He, he promised to do a couple of things. I'm going to clean you from all your filthiness. Whatever your filthiness has been, sins committed, habits formed, thoughts uh running rampant, whatever it is, I will clean you from that. And it's one thing to pronounced sins forgiven, and it's another thing to break old habits. I guess if you would want to clean up a pig, you'd start with scrubbing the hide and working on that, but unless you can do something inside, you're not going to get very far. Uh, Very quickly, back to the old thing, back to the slop, back to the mud. Uh, I guess we don't raise pigs that way anymore, but his normal nature is not to be clean, Actually, they do have some clean aspects about them, but their normal nature is to enjoy the mud. God said, I'll make you clean. There's this initial cleansing, the forgiveness for the shame that we bear, the sins we've committed, the guilt associated with that. There is an immediate pronouncement of forgiveness, and we kneel before God the first time and cry out to Him for mercy and forgiveness and cleansing. We can get up from our knees, and from that point backward, there is a clean slate. There is a forgiven... Uh, history and God gives that to us in a moment but then there's a continual cleansing an ongoing work of sanctifying in our life as we go forward this work is not done all at once there's sometimes thoughts and memories sometimes there's deeply formed habits there's attitudes and tendencies there's un likeness that takes sometimes time as we grow and as we come under the influence of God and we're changed from what we were to what we should be. Sometimes in a new believer's life, this gets discouraging. It feels like I'm so imperfect, I can't do it right, I'm always tripping up. And I would just suggest that you just be patient with the process. Because I believe we'll get discouraged with it long before God will. He was committed as long as we are committed to walk with Him, He will walk with us and make sure this gets done. We'll get tired of it long before He will. And He will continue to work in us until we are uh, I guess we'll never get quite finished. but least he'll take that work as far as he can in our life. He says, I'll cleanse you from your idols. All those things that rob our devotion, our attention, our affection. There's a beautiful thing about this. Every symbol of idolatry that must go down, it seems like God moves in to take its place. And instead of losing something we thought was important, we gain something that is much Deeper in value. And God wants it like that. Sometimes we say, Lord, we want more room for you. We want more, more of you in my life. Well, Sometimes uh, getting more of God in our life is sort of like wanting to park my car in the garage. I don't have a garage. But some people have garages. And some people's garages are so full you couldn't get a car in there sideways. And so if you want to get the car in, you've got to make some room for it. Get some stuff out. And sometimes our life is like that. If you want more of Him in your life, you need to make more room for Him in our life. And that that touches the whole subject of idolatry. I'll give you a new heart. Instead of an insensitive hard one, I'll give you a sensitive soft one. I'll write my laws there. Inside. And it's a beautiful thing to think that the very laws of God that were once written in stone can now be written at the very core of the flow of my life. And... From there within, judging and discerning and helping me understand so that as I live my life, there is a inner ability to discern between right and wrong. When the laws of God are there, sin feels different than it used to. You know, this is one big difference between one who has not walked with the Lord and then begins to walk with the Lord. The sin that he once ran after and delighted in just isn't that way. And you've probably spoken to people like that. The same thing they used to enjoy, they do it again. It's like, eh, I don't like this. this. This hurts inside. This isn't the same. One mark of true conversion is how quickly we repent when we fall. That's a mark of the Spirit guiding our life. This whole passage is a beautiful passage. And God says over and over, I will do it. I will do it. The new birth is what God will do when I repent. What God will do when I believe, when I commit my life and my walk to Him, it's what God will do. These are not things I can do by myself. This is what He does. As long as I cooperate with the captain of my salvation, I am in Him and He is in me, and it's a new life, new way to live. That's the first part. But this second part, and I believe it's in Galatians, it speaks of walking in the Spirit. Uh, The second part of newness of life comes after... This part happens. Uh, I guess it's not possible to walk in the Spirit without being born of the Spirit. The same way it's not possible to walk unless you're born. So birth comes first. After a while, walking happens. We need to walk in the Spirit. This I say then, says Galatians 5.16, Walk in the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Some people feel that a new birth is the goal. And as long as you can drag people to the cross, the work is done, praise the Lord, they are Christian. It's not quite that way. I believe it is a good goal, but the new birth experience is like an opening of a door to allow us to continue to walk. That's the starting point. And as important as a new birth is, I believe that unless I choose to walk in the Spirit, I'm headed for a defeated life. This includes many things, but a walking in the Spirit includes the branch and vine relationship In John 15, it speaks of that. An abiding, cooperating, mindfulness, awareness, trusting in His guidance, um, and knowing that every day I'm going to face things that I can't handle by myself. So I start by acknowledging His my, my desperate need of Him as we go into this situation or into this day. And the presence of Christ is a source of overcoming. We cannot do without it. You know, many people struggle with things and they f- they stumble around and they're not living in victory. And you ask them, so how's your devotional life going? How's your prayer life? And they might say, I just haven't felt like reading my Bible. I just don't pray much because I don't feel like it. And it's true that living in sin takes away your appetite for the things of the Lord. But it's also true that the things of the Lord will take away your appetite for a sinful life. And so some things we do on purpose. We wish everything would come naturally. We wish it would just we would just want to. But sometimes we do it because we know it's good. We know it's necessary. And so let's walk this way. Walking in the Spirit is a cross-bearing attitude. The cross was the instrument that dealt the death blow to sin. It says that Jesus condemned sin in the flesh, proved it wasn't necessary, and that action on the cross made it possible for other people to live above it. And Jesus' cross is not the only cross. He offers us one to carry for Him. I know it's a symbolic thing. We don't walk around with, with two pieces of wood over our shoulder. But of all the tools for walking in the Spirit, probably the understanding and the carrying of His cross is a most effective one. I believe that the law of sin and death has one handle. And the handle it has on me is, is living flesh and carnality. When that goes to the cross to be dealt with, Its grip on me, it's like there's nothing to get a hold of. And so we deal with that so we don't have to live in bondage to the things of the past. And this means many things. We identify with Christ. It's hard to be a cross-bearing Christian and not be identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. And some people struggle with that. To stand for truth, to be a witness, to let people know where we are with the Lord, and to dress differently, to show yourself part of the family of God. I believe that when we publicly identify with Christ, the temptations that would come are less, perhaps severe, in some areas at least. We're not anonymous anymore. We can't blend in like before. We're recognized as His. Carrying the cross means denying the claims of self. And self has many little aspects. There's self-will, there's selfishness, there's self-centeredness, there's pride and self-promotion. All these things militate, against the victorious life. And so we must deal with those claims. And I guess the cross attitude is simply coming to the realization that I no longer own myself. Flesh no longer dominates my life. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that is now ruler and Lord, and I live for him. It's a daily choice. He said, carry your cross daily. When Jesus went to the cross, he did not have to do it. And every step was a choice. Every moment was a choice. I believe when he was on the cross it was a choice. He could have called legions of angels. He could have set those people straight. He could have, he he could have done many things. But he chose to stay because it was his Father's will that he stay. And that's our choice. We must pray as Jesus prayed, not my will but thine be done. We can pray that prayer in the face of every temptation. That is a victorious life. We can honestly do that. The cross that we carry is the price of our communion with God. And we value that. The cross is where we battle with sin. In Galatians six fourteen, God forbid that I should glory, saving the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has crucified unto me and eye unto the world. So think of the cross as a gravestone of a double funeral. And there it is. The world is buried on that side and I'm buried on this side. And I am dead to the world, so it no longer recognizes me as one of its own. The world is dead to me. I no longer run after it. I no longer uh, desire it or trust it. And so when temptation comes, we go back and remember. When failure happens, we go back and renew the commitment, the vows there. When I struggle, that's where I go to cry out for help. There was a a homeless Honduran man in Guatemala that came to our house for some help. He was looking for a place to live and he needed a job and needed some food. And so we got to talking and we tried to find him an apartment and found him a job washing cars at a local car wash. And we got to know each other somewhat. But he told me his a little bit of his life story. He said he was a drug addict before he came to the Lord. And when he became a Christian, he knew that his drug habit had to go, had to stop. And so... Every evening, the first evening, he came home from work. That was his normal habit to come home and use his drugs at that point. And he chose not to. And he trembled, and he prayed, and he fasted, and he cried out to God for help. And he he struggled, and he made it through that first evening without it. And the next day, he came home, did the same thing: fasting, crying, praying, holding out God's promises, and. And so this went on for a whole year before the desire finally left. And he was free of it. And uh, that's hard. There's some things that that we might be used to doing or maybe have been used to doing that, that we would have to lay down or struggle to give up. And this man was a challenge to me. Uh, we often wish for a magic bullet that would make the desire go away. We wish everything we had to do was part of our want-to. But victory is often won the long, hard way. We we win, uh, we feed the mind with the good while we starve out the evil. And we, we choose one instead of the other. And over time, it loses its grip because we're making choices that, that make a difference. I remember when I was about 17 or 18 years old. One experience where some of us young people from Virginia came out to Indiana for a wedding, stayed at the house, nobody was at the house. And there was a television there. And, and we ran out and did what maybe Mennonite guys often do but shouldn't. We running some movies because we were fascinated with the movies. and uh, But the things we watched that night, and I repented of later, but the words, the images, the scenes that went through my mind – Stayed so close and were so hard to get rid of for months and months and months after. And they slowly died as I fed my mom with better things. But if I wouldn't have done that in the first place, what a, what a step ahead. The cross is the door to a spirit-filled life. And when that transaction takes hold, things change. Jesus, or John said, 1 John 4, 4, year of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If you look at Jesus, the firstborn of God, and how he handled temptation, uh, it's a beautiful thing. Now we're born of God, and we're called to face temptation. And when we're actually filled with his spirit, and we face temptation, and we're up to date in our relationship with God, it's almost like a, an uprising response within that's God's Spirit saying of course not no never it's, it's not this wimpy little well I guess I probably shouldn't it's like of course I wouldn't do that how dare you suggest it it's I guess a little bit like the uh, the sons of Sceva who went to try to cast out demons out of a man and they didn't know the Lord they didn't have any experience with him they said in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out well they had no backing they had no reason to do that and the demons knew it and they said, Paul I know and Jesus I know, but who are you? And they came at him and beat them up and sent them flying. And But that's not the experience of the one that has the indwelling presence of God in his life. He does not have to run and defeat from these things. He can be an overcomer. I'd like to conclude with two final encouragements. Uh. One is simply this, that as we choose to walk in the Spirit, often we have our our areas of weakness, and it differs with age. Sometimes older ones have different struggles than younger ones. Men maybe have different struggles than ladies. Maybe it's different different ages, different stages of life. And so we tend to focus on that one thing and think, if I could just overcome here, everything would get better. And so we fight with all our power in one thing, and maybe we forget that our life is a whole. And I was remembering the battles of the trenches in World War I, when there were two miles-long lines of men facing each other, dug in very close, and there's little skirmishes back and forth. Nobody got ahead, skirmishes. And one side of my mountain, a very big effort, and everybody piled out of their trenches and march forward to try to storm the other person's defenses and maybe crush the line and push out into the enemy territory. What they're doing is forming a protrusion out there. And so the further they got, the narrower they became. And the enemy quickly regrouped, cut them off. It was a defeat. They go back back to their bases, losing many lives and energy and and material and back to where they were, defeated again. If they would have... Maybe the whole line. Maybe the whole 50 miles or whatever it was. I'd like to suggest that as, as a spiritual person, you're not called to win in the Spirit in just one area. We need a Spirit-filled life in every area. And maybe don't just focus on the one thing, but all of life. What about eating habits? What about rising habits? What about devotional habits? What about... Uh, all these other areas that form part of our life. Anger, bitterness, forgiveness. There's many things. And So we, we look at this as a whole and we want God's Spirit to work in the whole so our life can progress forward as a whole together and not just uh, be defeated in one area over and over. Second thing that I find encouraging, Zach Poonan was a preacher from India and he said, Sin is like sickness and holiness is like health. And how healthy do you want to be, you know, if you have leukemia? You're going to tell the doctor, well, 50% is pretty good. i like to try for 50% or cancer or something else. No, we say we want to go for 100%. We want to make sure we're completely healed, as healed as possible. Paul wrote, but now you put off also all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, out of your mouth. That's like saying, I want you to be free from all leukemia, all cancer, all coronavirus, all stomach ulcers, all diabetes, whatever. God's will for our life is spiritual health. Free from sin, servants of righteousness. God said, be holy as I am holy. He wants us to be healthy like He is healthy because sin is illness. It's spiritual sickness. And there's two laws at work tonight. The law of sin and death and the law of life in Christ Jesus. We'll never find victory over the first until we learn to implement the second. That's the only one that can possibly produce an overcoming life. Just like there's no way to fly except that Bernoulli's principle makes it work. I guess you could use a blimp. Different laws in effect. But I believe that our battle against the spiritual gravity will probably continue until the day we die. It's just not, it'll be an ongoing struggle. And the question is not, is it true in your life that the law of the life in Christ Jesus makes me free? But is it true in your life? That's the question you need to ask. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our Father in heaven tonight, we just thank you for this truth in Scripture you've pointed out to us. We do not need to live defeated. We can live victorious. And I just pray that in this place you might reign supreme and you might lead us all and show us the path through the cross to a victorious life. Whatever our weakness is, whatever our struggle is, help us to find peace and freedom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.